Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. And today we're continuing a series called Gospel Reset, where we are returning to emphasize the core foundational nature of the gospel and how it is to shape and influence every dimension of our lives. And today we're going to read a very familiar story out of Luke's gospel. And in your bulletin, I think it has verse 36 to verse 50, but one good thing about uh, doing the bulletin on Thursday and preaching on Sundays, you get to change your mind. So let's begin at verse 31. And if I don't have another time to do this, I want to do it now. Is that Katie Rogers back there? Hi, so nice to see you. Glad you're here today. Okay. Now, hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet... Wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he, he who is forgiven little loves little. 
And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that he would show us Jesus and him only, that he would open our eyes and soften our hearts and melt away the resistance that we may see for the first time who we really are and what we really need and who you really are and what you have done to rescue us from ourselves. We pray your blessings on our time together, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As shepherds of God's flock, pastors wrestle with the wounds and the waywardness of the human heart. They counsel guilty people who are consumed by self-condemnation. They counsel very defensive people who try to deflect God's heart-piercing word through self-justification, scapegoating, and blame-shifting. They counsel those ensnared by deeply ingrained patterns of shameful lust or unbridled rage, trapped souls who derive no pleasure from their sin but despair of finding freedom from it as well. They counsel the complacent whose self-absorbed habits of the heart sow seeds of dissension in every single relationship they have in the home, in the church, in the workplace. Pastoral counseling is what the older shepherds of generations before us called the cure of souls. Healing the heart of its deep and complex maladies and brokenness through the wise application of God's infection exposing law and his conscience cleansing gospel. When Jesus says you're clean, you are really clean. Husbands and wives glowering at each other, their fires of resentment stoked by years of misunderstanding, of offense and neglect. A middle-aged man reluctantly and despondently opens up and unveils the secret shame of his enslavement to pornography and impure fantasies. An adolescent hunches in self-loathing and insecurity, hating her appearance, cutting herself, wounded by the scorn of peers, terrorized by the prospect of a life without love. Such hurting souls need relief from the inner torment, but the shepherd knows they need more than this. They don't just need a mere description of what is, but they need a prescription that brings healing. Descriptiveness is helpful, but description without a prescription is not. And so, they need to see themselves. They need to see their situations. They need to see God in a fresh and vitalizing way. Uh, to get a glimpse or even a glimmer of hope that change is possible and to be gripped with a motive sweet enough and strong enough and enduring enough to overpower the inertia of the status quo and to quicken the pace to strive for peace 
with everyone in the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The need to understand not only the what of godly change, but its why recognizes the attitudes, values, and behaviors that please God, but also to be moved by the overpowering beauty of this goal of delighting in their Redeemer and King. How can the pastor not only persuade those who seek counseling, but help them set their wills ablaze with a passion for peace and purity grounded in the conviction that conformity to the image of Christ is worth the price that is paid, the pain we go through, whatever the cost, whatever the consequences in the short term. Now, listen carefully. At first glance, it would appear that the Reformation doctrine of simul ustus et peccator would be of little help at all. I'll explain what that is in a moment. Sinful persons are justified decisively and irreversibly merely through looking outside of themselves and relying completely on the person of Christ and what he has done to save us. His covenant keeping, what theologians call his active obedience, Lo, it is written in the book, I love to do, I delight to do your will, Jesus quotes from the Psalter. And the covenant curse-bearing, his passive obedience, alone would hamstring Christian motivation to race toward holiness, therefore depriving the shepherd of much-needed leverage to overcome a counselee's inertia. If we are assured that we're not only forgiven, but vindicated as upright in God's sight, welcomed as well-pleasing to the Father once for all, irrevocably, why must Christians keep struggling in the endless uphill battle against our deeply ingrained sin and selfishness? If throughout this life we will be simul ustus et peccator, simul, get the word simultaneous, ustus, very close to the word justice or righteousness. Um, et, which means and, and peccator, remember Augustine's non peccase uh, 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 in uh, his discussion of the fall. Non peccase uh, peccare, sinner. Let me go back and repeat that. I probably just confused everybody. My mind runs wild like that. Every once in a while I have to lasso it. So I'm pulling the rope in right now. In Jesus' imputed righteousness and in our own subjective imperfection, does not our legal status grounded in a righteousness that is alien and outside of us really undermine the need for growth in godliness when our inner righteousness nullifies the hope of growth in godliness. By reading Paul as removing Christ, the Christian's best effort at loving God and others from the justification equation, have the Reformed theologians removed from the pastor's arsenal several potent instruments, instruments like guilt, Pastors love to nag you and make you feel bad. Um, Mark Twain once said, I went to church this Sunday and the most amazing thing happened. I felt better when I left than when I got there. Guilt 
working people through guilt or fear of divine judgment and rejection, uh, playing up a sense of achievement and anticipation of reward and commendation with which to stimulate and reinforce counselees commitment to change. Sometimes we catch ourselves here in sort of a catch-22. Are we really undermining the way we could motivate people? And if you don't know what a catch-22 is, Google it. But a catch-22 is being between the rock and a hard place or the devil in a deep blue sea. Pastoral counselors can still appeal to other motives of change that seem more sanctified. The pastor might encourage people in their duty to safeguard their self-esteem, to preserve their reputation. Such appeals to common sense and enlightened self-interest might strike a nerve and convince counselees to give change a chance. But there's nothing distinctively Christian about any of those motives. So Scripture and the church's tested pastoral wisdom point pastors and their counselees to the gospel itself. The good news uh, that defends and celebrates a mediator who has both endured condemnation in our place and who bestows his achievements as the foundation and fountain of a God-given, grace-instilled motive that overpowers the appeals of both sin and self-righteousness, producing a freedom to obey for the sheer love of the Savior and for God's glory alone. And so to do so, and to help us understand that, we have to understand that the prescription we are calling on is the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Can it carry the freight to do this? Now the gospel's more than just justification, but it's not less than that. And although the assurance that biblical justification imparts may seem both to legalists and antinomians to work at cross-purposes to Scripture's summons to strenuously strive and pursue holiness. In fact, only this assurance can produce a holiness that springs from love of God rather than an exploitation of God for our own ends. In other words, only when obedience flows from a justification secured assurance of the Father's approval of us for His Son's sake is our obedience and expression of love for God above all rather than an attempt to obligate Him through our efforts. And so that's the core I'm talking about. You will never change. You will never see great dramatic change unless there is in place in the foundation and fountain of your being a justification secured assurance that Christ really has taken your guilt and sin and condemnation upon you. That Christ really has obeyed everything God has commanded of you in your place and now presents it to you. And only when through the assurance of faith are you secure enough to deal with the wounds and the pathologies we all have. Every single one of us. Now, you may think, that's a pretty stilted introduction. But now I'm going to tell you a story that I hope will make it all come true and make sense. It's the passage we just read. 
There we see the grand demonstration of the fundamental point I'm trying to get across to you. How can we really change? How can we really be helped? Well, let's look at this story. Now, Jesus tells stories all through the gospel, and they are always provocative. It seems like Jesus is continuously picking fights with people. Why? Because the gospel is completely contradictory to human categories of thought and human grids or a way of thinking about yourself or God and others. And when we hear things about Jesus, we must all, always pour into our grid and really bypass what he's really saying. A grid is a mental construct, a paradigm, a worldview. I asked my wife one time, what is a paradigm? She said about 20 cents. No, it's an it's a interpretive grid. We all have one. Everything that we are, everything that we've experienced, everything that we've learned, everything that we study is a grid through which we see uh, the phenomena of reality and the data that comes spraying at us constantly in our world of information. And so we learn to think about certain things but Jesus is here to completely crush and crash our paradigms, our natural paradigms, part of his reason for being. He's a friend of sinners talking among the most strictly observant people of his day, the Pharisees, who are far more conservative than anybody in this room, far more uh, moral, far more caring about every jot and tittle of the word, but they missed, they had the wrong paradigm. And so Jesus is trying to smash their paradigms. One great illustration of something like an interpretive grid, there was a book that rocked the academic world in 1964, and you say, well, gosh, that was a long time ago. But uh, it's still creating reverberation. That book is by Thomas Kuhn, and the book is The Structure of Scientific Revolution. In this book, he says, no observer comes to the data with neutrality. That means that when you start to observe something, you already got a set of foundational assumptions about the nature of reality, and you're not so much neutrally observing the data as you are reading it into your grid. You usually are interpreting the data According to your own grid, the classic example in history is the, uh, the clash between uh, a geocentric uh, universe and a heliocentric universe. Whether or not the earth revolves around the sun or the sun around the earth. Church got him involved in that one. Up until a certain time, the grid was that we are stationary and everything else is moving around us. That was the assumption. But Kuhn says this, eventually enough data came in that didn't fit with the understanding uh, of the academia, then enough that looked at contradicted this fundamental assumption. They finally said, maybe we're looking at it wrongly. Perhaps it is the sun that is stationary and we're moving around it. Suddenly everything else made sense. 
And so the whole of what Jesus is doing in the Gospels is trying to smash paradigms and turn them around to get people to see reality because sin blinds us. It distorts our ability to interpret reality. So we all need a Gospel, as it were, paradigm, a way of seeing and interpreting and organizing and analyzing data. By the way, David, thanks so much. Where are you? Right over here. Thanks so much for mentioning Independence Day and for also praying for the president and the vice president and for also praying uh, that l they would come to light regarding uh, abortion. I was listening to a podcast uh, with Tim Keller on a Gospel Coalition thing. Tim Keller's now 69 years old. He has pancreatic cancer. The outcome of that is usually not great, usually death. And I heard him say this, and it shook me for a second. He says, should Christians be involved in culture? Should Christians be involved in politics? You better believe we should. You better believe we need to start, and we need to start now. We need to wake up. I've never heard him say that. But somehow, being ready to die gives you clarity, doesn't it? You begin to see things you didn't see before. But anyway, back to the story. I promise I won't go down any more bunny trails. But the power of the gospel, once for all justification, to motivate the passionate pursuit of holiness is illustrated in this passage, the upright versus the down and out. Now, here we have the story. He's in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Jesus ministers to two counselees, shall we say who have appeared to have radically different needs, almost polar opposite. Simon, Jesus' host, was respectable, and he was affiliated with the most conservative sect within Judaism that was recognized for observing God's commands and evidently conscientious in, in the avoidance of ethically compromising situations. Perhaps he might have been termed to be judgmental toward other people and their flaws. Who does not disapprove of people who deserve disapproval? He might possibly be charged with breaches of ancient etiquette for failing to attend to and welcome and comfort his guests. Though New Testament scholars go back and forth on this. But Simon's need for personal change on the surface seemed minimal, at least to himself. He was doing well. He's the kind of guy you'd want for a neighbor. No loud parties, uh, no uh, stuff in your yard coming from his yard, uh, no you know, 97 cars parked in his driveway and around the street. Simon's neat. He's clean. He's together. His need for any kind of change seems Minimal. Think about that for a moment. Minimal. This guy's doing okay. He's a pretty good guy. You probably like Simon if you knew him. He's fair. He's just. He does well. But the women, all of a sudden there's a woman who slips into the semi-public banquet. On the other hand, she was notorious for a pattern of behavior that violated God's holy law. She was scandalous, to say the least. Not only that, but look at what she does. She's obviously emotionally overwrought, sobbing, as it seems, uncontrollably, uh, uh, oblivious to societal expectations and decorum. 
Releasing her hair down from the top of her head in the presence of men was, had all kinds of sexual connotations. And probably economically imprudent if her alabaster flask of ointment even approached the value of Mary's in the Gospel of John. Probably a year's salary. And you know how she paid for that. She was a prostitute. And so, she was en route to a brand new life. What made the difference in the life of this woman who was a sinner? Well, Jesus tells a story within a story. He does this often. Disarming in its simplicity, self-evident in its logic, he unveiled the secret that propels radical life change. He introduces one creditor and two borrowers, one owing ten times as much as the other. In a burst of incredible largesse, the creditor erases both debts. The sheer economic imprudence of this action signal, signals that the story is really about a different non-financial category of debt relief altogether. Jesus invites his upright host to draw the inference. Which of them will love him more? Notice he doesn't say be more grateful. He says which of the two debtors will love him more? Simon cautiously grasps the logic. He says I suppose he ventures the man forgiven the greater debt. Even if we missed in the hint of the creditor's inex generosity that the topic is not a debt of denarii but rather guilty humanity before the God the judge. Jesus' mention of love reveals the real frame of reference. He doesn't ask who will be more relieved nor even who will be more grateful. The question again is who will love his creditor turned benefactor more? In the spiritual reality to which Jesus' simple story points, reckless grace binds beneficiary to benefactor with a bond far stronger than debt or duty. What now moves the once indebted, uh, indebted recipient of grace is not a lingering sense of obligation, compelling efforts to repay, at least in part so great a gift as though the debt still stood on the books, the debt's canceled. No deficit remains to be paid. The uh, uh, benefactor has fully absorbed the loss. The motive that such grace evokes in this woman is spontaneous, uncoerced love. A love that serves the beloved foreigner or forgiver with free abandon that neither guilt nor duty could engender. Of course, Jesus who knows humanity through and through, had no illusions about our capacity to respond wrongly to grace. Elsewhere, he challenged the desires to curtail one's obligation to forgive others, telling a parable that exposes our schizophrenic capacity to cling to grievances against others, uh, offenses even when we have received divine mercy beyond comprehension in Matthew chapter 18. 
First century listeners would have realized immediately the absurdity of the unforgiving servant's request for more time to repay his debt of tens of thousands of talents. Such an enormous debt would have taken many lifetimes for any person to repay. But even before the story describes the harsh severity toward his fellow servant, the source of the ruthless justice is revealed. The servant represents those who devalue their debt toward God until it seems manageable. As a consequence, they are totally oblivious, impervious, and unfazed by divine grace on the one hand, and on the other hand, they are disinclined to extend mercy to fellow servants who are in their debt. Whenever, however, we see grace to be as gracious as it actually is, our heart's reflex will not merely be ought to, but will be self-abandoning love. Self-abandoning love. This is what dazzles us as we watch the woman's treatment of Jesus. And Jesus reasons back from visible effects to the invisible cause. Where one sees great love for Jesus, one can be sure that behind it, the root from which it springs, the fountain from which it flows, is great forgiveness and great grace. Jesus' parable suggests that the crucial act in the drama being played out at Simon's banquet has already occurred off stage. The woman's tears are not the tears of grief and guilt and shame or despair. They are the tears of sheer joy. Tears of love for grace already received, forgiveness already granted, justification bestowed by Messiah, assuring her of God's welcome, her shameful past notwithstanding. Her exorbitant gift of ointment likewise expresses an uncoerced and unconstrained love evoked by God's sheer grace in Jesus. By contrast, look at Simon. Look at his behavior, especially toward Jesus and his attitude toward the woman. Exhibit no sense of having needed or received forgiveness of a debt that is of any serious magnitude. Like other Pharisees, he was well aware that the Scripture and experience indict everybody under sin, at least those inadvertent missteps for which the law provided sacrificial and cleansing rituals. Whether Simon's omissions at the start of the banquet, no water, no kiss, no oil, were rude or merely indifferent, they showed that to Simon Jesus was not worth the effort. And why, after all, should he consider Jesus worth the effort? Simon saw in himself no great need, no insurmountable debt that only Jesus could erase. That's where so many of us are. I mean, we like Jesus to be a band-aid for the bumps and bruises of life, but we just don't understand how needy we are, how broken we are, how in today's parlance, messed up we are. All of us. And so to Simon, he was doing well with it. What does he need Jesus for? He's living a perfectly comfortable life. He doesn't need to go digging inside and introspecting his soul. He doesn't need to be all caught up over stuff that's minor. 
He's doing well without just, he has no stomach or taste for grace. It means nothing to him. Jesus means nothing to him. Yet the wonderful counselor promised in Isaiah would not write off the Pharisee any more than the welcoming father refused to go out and persuade the self-righteous older brother who resented undeserved mercy and rejected the joy of refining the lost. The first thing out of people's mouths are, how are you going to get people to behave if you undermine our central mechanism to control them? And the wonderful truth of this story is, it is just beautiful, uncoerced, unrestrained love of a woman who is caught up in the grandeur of God's grace and the depth of its forgiveness. She understands now that she is clean. She's never been clean in all of her life. That's why Simon the prophet said, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is touching him because this sinner touching him makes him what? Unclean. And yet, Simon's the one who's unclean. The woman is pure, washed in the blood of Jesus, wearing his beautiful robe of righteousness. She's beautiful. And Simon, on the other hand, is oblivious. He doesn't see it. He doesn't value it. It doesn't... Uh, I used to have a Southern Baptist pastor who used to say, it doesn't melt his butter. But anyway, I don't know where these thoughts come from. I hope the Holy Spirit, I hope that's helping you. Simon's no, he's not motivated in the least. Yet, the remedy for Simon's subtle idolatry is identical to the cure of the woman's flagrant lawlessness. Only the discovery of profound guilt forgiven by utter grace can evoke extravagant, self-forgetful love for Jesus and love for others for Jesus' sake, which we will look at next week. But in conclusion, there is somebody whose name is Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote an extensive article called The Expulsive Power of a new affection, which he opens by positing two contrasting strategies for turning people away from sinful desires. He says the first strategy is that of demonstrating that the world's attractions are deceitful and destructive of those who set their hearts on them, can never affect lasting change for the simple reason that it does nothing more than create an affection vacuum in the heart. To be told, even persuaded, that clinging to a particular pattern of sin or self-righteousness is futile and self-destructive will not itself free the heart from the pattern's allure and control, as both pastors and counselees can sadly attest. Only the second strategy, which replaces affection for sin with a new and stronger affection for an infinitely more delightful object, can supply the motivation that sustains ongoing pursuit of holiness. The overwhelming beauty of a new affection, which this woman illustrates, the discovery of, of a manifestly more attractive object of desire and occasion of delight can easily displace the inferior appeal of sin. I had a friend one time who was a smoker, and uh, 
this was back when I was in the Baptist church. You know, you didn't uh, smoke or chew or go with girls who do. And so he, he was trying to stop, and he'd been smoking ever since he was like 11 years old, and he must have been in his 20s. And so he stopped. And I went to him, and I said, can you tell me how you stopped smoking? He said it this way, I wanted not to more than I wanted to. Now, I wasn't smart enough at the time to go, well, what made you not, not want to more than you wanted to? And probably what it was was the expulsive power of a new affection. We are what we love. We pursue what we love. We do what we love. Uh, if, if getting up on Sunday morning and coming to church is something I love to do because I want to do it because I love Jesus and I want to go tell him I love him and I want to go give him praise and glory, and I, I'll be here. Nothing will stop me if that's what I love. And so, the expulsive power of a new affection, I want to read Chalmers' own words so that I'm not misrepresenting him. He says this, and I close with this. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one, and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. Thus it is that the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying is the gospel. And the more it is received as the doctrine of grace, the more will it be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. Okay, we preach grace around here. Why ain't people running all over the world trying to uh, express great love for Jesus? Because we don't see our sin. The more I see Jesus, the more I see my sin. And the more I see my sin, the more greater and lovingly I see Jesus. And that's where motivation comes from. It comes from weakness. It comes from brokenness. It comes from a place of need, great need. It is only when, uh, as in the gospel, acceptance is bestowed as a present without money and without price that the security which men feels in God is placed beyond the reach of disturbance or that he can repose in him as one friend reposes in another. The one party rejoicing over the other to do him good, the other finding that the truest gladness of heart lies in the impulse of gratitude which is awakened to the charms of a new moral existence. Salvation by grace. Salvation by free grace. Salvation not of works, but according to the mercy of God. Salvation on such a footing is not more indispensable to the deliverance of our person from the hand of justice than it is to the deliverance of our heart from the chill and weight of ungodliness. The same utterly gracious grace that erases our guilt, silences the accusing conscience, satisfies the divine justice, sets our hearts free and on fire to pursue joyful holiness in the fearless love for God who has lavished his love upon us. So, do you find your love for Jesus overpowering you. Now, understand this. This is the battle. This is the battle of sanctification. This is the battle of growing in holiness. This is the battle of getting outside of ourselves and reaching out and loving other people. This is the core of the battle. Have you 
done one single thing this week because you love Jesus. One single thing. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. We thank you for what we have seen and heard. And Lord, we need a major paradigm shift. We need to be transformed in the way we see and evaluate and understand life in this world. We need the fundamental assumptions of the gospel as the very foundation and fountain which provides our life with a way of seeing and a way of being and a way of knowing. Grant to us, by your grace, the assurance we all need to be secure enough to see what Simon couldn't see, how desperately our plight is and how much or how desperate our plight is and how much we need Jesus who is full of grace and truth. Now Lord, as we continue to worship you, we pray that we would give as people like this woman who loved Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen.